can find the reading on page 1178 in your church Bibles. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. Living with perspective. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning and welcome to our next instalment, second instalment of this letter to the Philippians. So last week Dave started to explain the letter and next week Steve will continue. If you're expecting Steve, sorry we swapped, but this week we're going to look at the second half of chapter one. But first let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word read to us now and we pray that you will help us to understand how to apply that in our lives today. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
And before we look at this passage, I want to ask you a question. What brings you joy? Here's a few things that bring us joy, make us rejoice. New babies, weddings, holidays. We're off on holiday on Friday. Family celebrations. Lots of things bring joy to lots of us. I'm sure nobody else will share my particular joy, but the thing that brought me earlier this year loads of joy, the sort of joy that makes feelings bubble out and cause you to laugh and smile. And in my case, I had to send a WhatsApp message to two people who I thought would know why I would be excited. Uh, was uh, was really simple. I typed a letter in Word. You do that. And then I used my stylus on my tablet and I signed it in bright blue ink. I've, I've, I've taken out the word so that you can't see because it was a letter for a client. And then I sent it on behalf of my client. I saved it as a PDF. I sent it to somebody and I didn't have to print it out or sign it or scan it. And even as I'm telling you, that joy's bubbling up again within me. And I'm laughing because I was so happy. And you're laughing because you can't quite believe that I'd find you in something so boring. But we're all different. And rejoicing, rejoice, it's the verb that connects to joy. When I feel joy, I'm rejoicing. If I'm rejoicing, I'm feeling joy. And as we've said, some some things cause most people to rejoice. Some things are quite personal. But we're going to look this morning at some things that brought Paul joy, that made Paul rejoice, and consider what it would mean for us to rejoice in similar circumstances. Last week, we started to look at this letter from Paul in prison to the Christians in Philippi. It's a letter sent to all the Christians in the church in Philippi, not just the leaders, So we can take it that what Paul wrote was supposed to be relevant to every single member of the church in Philippi and to each of us today. We're going to look at the passage in three sections. Paul was rejoicing in opportunity, verses 12 to the first part of 18. He was rejoicing in purpose and rejoicing under pressure. So Paul starts off explaining that he wants the church to know what happened to him and that rather than causing his ministry to stop, it served to advance the gospel. Throughout this letter, and seven times in this morning's passage, Paul refers to the gospel. His his shorthand way of saying Jesus came to earth, died and rose again so we could be in relationship with God. But it, it comes all the way through the letter, as does the word rejoice. Paul's in prison. It's not certain where, but it's likely he was physically chained to one of Caesar's crack soldiers, the Praetorian Guard. As the soldiers encountered Paul, they must have talked to one another Verse 13 tells us that soon all the palace guard and everyone else around knew about him and about his message. Now, being imprisoned would make many people feel 
bitter or even give up. But that's not what happened to Paul. Instead, Paul just sees it as another opportunity to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And throughout the New Testament, for Paul, the circumstances he's in aren't as important as how he decides to use them. Think back through your life to maybe it's a great preacher you heard or somebody who explained the gospel to you in a way that you became a Christian. Maybe it was Billy Graham. Perhaps it was somebody leading a small group for people inquiring about the Christian faith or maybe a friend. And then just imagine the impact that person might have had on you if you were chained to them for six hours or more at a time, nowhere to go, nothing else to do, but listen to them explaining the gospel and answering your questions. And then even when your shift had ended, you'd be assigned to guard them again in the next few weeks. There's no escape. And that's why in verse 12, Paul says, being imprisoned is advancing the gospel. He's involved in daily, one-to-one faith sharing with people who can't leave the room. How do we respond to the situations we face in life? It, it's usually, it should be easier for us to give thanks to God when things are going well. And most of us are quite quick to call out to God when things aren't going as we'd hope. But our challenge is, can we take the discouragements life throws at us and demonstrate our faith through them? In verses 15 to the first part of 18, Paul explains there are some people around who are preaching the gospel whilst he's in prison from different motives. Some of them are doing it because they want to continue Paul's work. So they're sharing the good news wherever they are. Though Paul, their leaders in prison, the church in Philippi isn't paralysed but continues to proclaim Christ. And as they do that, verse 14, we see that they become bolder in proclaiming the gospel, not more scared and weak, bolder. And then in verse 17, it says, some are preaching out of selfish ambition, which the ESV translation calls envy. But they weren't preaching anything wrong. There's no stuff about false gospels here. It's just their motives were wrong. Maybe they could see the churches that Paul was founding were growing and they wanted to cause a bit of bother for Paul. Perhaps they thought if they annoyed the authorities and created trouble, their own churches would benefit from the new members. We don't know. All we know is that Paul's not bothered. Because in verse 18 he says, What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So whatever Satan might have been planning to divert and dilute the gospel, Satan's plans came to nothing because rather than grumbling about other churches, seeing them as opposition, Paul just rejoices to know the gospel is preached. And that says so much for how we can relate to the churches around us as well. So, as Val said in her prayers, you know, let's be encouraged as a new church in Preston. And as Sam Haig said when he came here, 
they're there for the 98% who aren't in churches, not for the 2% who are. But it's that thing, if our motives doesn't matter, the motives don't matter as long as we're preaching the gospel. So, being in prison for Paul has become a set of opportunities when he can rejoice. He's rejoicing because he had the opportunity to preach the gospel. He's had the opportunity to give courage to other Christians to preach the gospel and to motivate others, even if it's only out of jealousy. And all those things mean that the gospel's advanced. But Paul also rejoices because of purpose. You know how it is when somebody had a sense of purpose? It might be as mundane as getting to the school gate on time. This week I went to Manchester and I had a restricted ticket back from Manchester. It was silly. How did I ever think I could guarantee to get on the nine, uh, the nine minutes past five from Dean's Gate? I should have known, but £4 was so good. But I had to get on the train despite it being full. And that focused purpose meant that I did. I managed to weave my way through and get on, saying, please, please, my, I'm not allowed on any other train. So when we've got purpose, it drives us hard. We focus on one thing. And we make sure that happens and other things fall away. And that's how it is for Paul. But rather than having a purpose of getting on an overfull train, his purpose is not to let Christ down. Now, how would you complete the following sentence? For me to live it. What makes you get out of bed in the morning? What word or phrase would you put in the blank? My family, my football team, my work. For those who don't know God, this life is the only life. So striving for values of the world, money, popularity, power, pleasure, are natural things to focus on. But as Christians... We have to learn to be like Paul, to focus on eternal values. Paul's purpose in life was to live for Christ and to speak out for him. What does Paul say? In verse 21 he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can't make up his mind whether it's better for him to live, keep preaching, keep growing the church, or to die and be in God's presence. A few years ago, we used to sing these words. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, to hold his hand and walk his narrow way. There is no peace, no joy, no thrill like walking in his will. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But I wonder, did we mean them like Paul? It seems to me that the words in that old song focus more really on the living for Christ than the dying is gain bit of verse 21. Maybe we can accept it with our heads that that's how we should be, but in our hearts we struggle, we struggle to accept 
what Paul said. There are times when we don't know what of two things to choose. That's what's happening to Paul. What's the most desirable option? So here's my dilemmas. Will I choose cabbage or sprouts? Well, either would be as bad as the other for me. I wouldn't want to choose either. So if you made me, it would be really hard to choose. But what if it was, would I choose Rocky Road or Caramel Shortbread? Oh, equally difficult, but either would be good. And reading this passage, when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, it's like he's being asked to choose between two equally desirable options, like Rocky Road or Caramel Shortcake, not Sprouts or Cabbage. It says at the end of verse 24 that he decides it'll be better to live. But his desire for life isn't so that he can complete his bucket list and tip off a few more tricks, but so that he can continue to disciple the church and see their progress and their joy in their faith. He's rejoicing in that purpose that's been created by God. If he lives, he can continue to preach and minister. And if he dies, he'll glorify Christ and be with Christ. And our purpose for living needs to go beyond providing for our physical needs, but be bound up in Christ. And this section of the letter finishes by giving some advice as to how church members should relate to one another. There's lots more guidance about that in chapter 2, which Steve is speaking about next week. But what Paul does here is make it clear that they're going to face suffering. So that's the context for chapter 2, really. They're going to face suffering. In verse 27, he tells them that whatever happens, they are to ensure that they act in ways that are appropriate for Christians. Pointing to the gospel, not detracting from it. Working together for the gospel. Learning to love, as Jesus does. Times are uncertain. Christians are being persecuted. And Paul encourages the church in Philippi not to split up and scatter and hide, but stay together. He doesn't know whether he'll come back to them, but he wants to hear about their unity and the courage they show as they witness. He reminds them that they're blessed with salvation, but that that blessing means that they will also suffer for the gospel. We need to remember that whilst our faith gives us hope for the future, it doesn't rescue us from sufferings. The death and resurrection of Jesus show us that suffering has meaning and can bring about God's redemption of the world. Even when we don't experience suffering in our own lives, our Iranian brothers, the stories they share, our testimony to the reality of the suffering that comes to Christians and is so real in so many countries in the world. In verse 30, Paul tells the Philippian church, they are going through the same struggle you saw I had, 
and now here that I still have. And as they experience the pressure of persecution, they're called, like Paul, to rejoice. Paul in prison rejoices because, despite his circumstances, he sees the opportunities for the gospel to be advanced. He rejoices because he knows that his purpose, whether he lives or dies, is to point to Christ. And though they too were suffering persecution, he encourages the church in Philippi to rejoice for the same reasons. How we see life defines how we face life. When we, like Paul, learn to see things through God's eyes, with God's perspective, we too can see what's important and learn to rejoice despite our sufferings. In a moment, we're going to sing Horatio Spafford's hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I know that many of you know that Spafford wrote this hymn after different things in his life had gone wrong. His baby son had died aged two. Then a fire destroyed most of the property he owned and he was financially ruined. Decided they should all go, the remaining family should go to England, but he put his wife and daughters on the ship and he stayed behind to tidy up his business affairs. And the ship sank and all his daughters drowned. But he had his eyes fixed on God. He saw things with God's eternal perspective. And despite these tragedies, he was able to say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you will help each one of us to fix our eyes on you. Those who are struggling today, those who will face as yet unknown hardships tomorrow or in the future, for each one of us, help us to look to you and to point others to you. Help us to rejoice in our salvation, to see things with your sense of perspective, and to be able to say, it is well with my soul. Amen. Amen.